So Exodus 14, beginning at verse 15. This is the holy word of Almighty God. Take care how you hear it. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch... The Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us this day. May he write... It's eternal truth on all our hearts. Let's pray again. Lord, this is your word and we need it. We need it for strength. We need it for the health of our souls. We need it for perspective and wisdom and insight and refreshment. We need it for life. To whom else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so we come to you asking, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to hear your voice as you speak in the scriptures. And grant to each of us the work of your spirit. Open our ears and apply your word to our hearts that we may treasure up these things. Amen. All scripture is God-breathed. 
All scripture is inspired, all scripture is holy and inerrant and is useful to us, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. None of us, I hope, I trust, would argue that there are parts of the Bible that are more inspired or less inspired than others. But at the same time, there are high points to Scripture. There are passages and moments that are of especially significant consequence. To give a a secular example, we do this when we study American history, of course. Every aspect of history is important in some regard along the way, but we do tend to spend more attention and give more attention on the major high points. The pilgrims settling in the 1600s, or the American Revolution in the late 1700s, the war between the states, World War I, World War II, etc. It is fair to say that these events and the factors and issues surrounding them are worth more of our attention than, say, the kind of timber that President James A. Garfield ordered for the construction of his home in Mentor, Ohio. Well, in the same way, we often study scripture with this assumption. It's all important, it's all God's word, it's all useful, but some instances are especially weighty. For instance, the passages about the giving of the law, or when sin entered the world in Eden, or the Davidic covenant, or Christ's death and resurrection, or when Christ returns in judgment. These sections are arguably worth more of our attention than, say, debating the exact location of the cave of Machpelah, where Sarah was buried by Abraham. All of Yosemite National Park is beautiful, but the mighty redwoods really do take your breath away when you come upon them. The passage before us today is one of those mighty redwoods, something that especially takes your breath away in the midst of all kinds of majestic scripture. God's glory in salvation through judgment. This is one of the grand themes of Scripture, and we have been arguing it is one of the grand themes of the whole book of Exodus. And nowhere, nowhere is that more clearly demonstrated in Exodus than in the passage that we have just read that's before us this morning. We've seen it already. God delivers his people, but judgment falls on another party whenever his people are delivered. Remember the plagues fall on Egypt, the death of the firstborn, yet Israel is set free. Judgment, deliverance. Here, the elite soldiers of mighty imperial Egypt are destroyed, smote, and Israel passes through the waters dry, safe, and secure. Judgment, deliverance. What we have before us is nothing short of a miracle. And so momentous is this occasion, this exodus, this going through the waters, as we've mentioned before, that this event, the Exodus, it becomes the paradigm. It becomes the picture, the symbol, the reference point for the salvation of God's people throughout all of Scripture from henceforth. Even in the New Testament, the work of Jesus himself, his death on the cross on behalf of his people gets framed in reference to the Exodus. In Luke 9, verse 31, the word there that gets translated in our English Bibles as departure, it is actually the word exodon in the Greek. It is called Jesus' exodus, his departure. It was a scandalous death. It was a sham of a trial. It was an embarrassment to the disciples. And it was a rather ignominious end to a promising ministry. Some Messiah, God's own son, slaughtered like a common criminal, by the order of some has-been mid-level Roman officer. How's God going to bring any good out of this 
scenario. It does not look promising. Well, the exodus of Jesus, as Luke puts it, and the exodus of the Hebrews here, as Moses puts it, are rather similar in that sense. From the the vantage point of the fleeing Israelites, the whole situation must have seemed like a terrible gaffe on God's part. It was God, chapter 14, verse 1, who told them to turn around and head back to camp between Migdol and the sea. It was God. It was God who put them in this situation. But as God himself made clear to Moses, however strange it may have seemed at times, however terrifying to watch the Egyptians bearing down on the terrified Israelites, even in this impossible situation, with mighty imperial Egypt bearing down upon them and with the Red Sea at their back, even in this impossible, seemingly impossible situation, God's strategy was being worked out. In fact, putting them in such a predicament was God's strategy. And so this passage teaches us about the nature of God's salvation, the way in which the Lord fights for his people, as we thought about last time, our God fights for us. The way he delivers and saves and rescues his people, the way he triumphs on their behalf. We're not simply reading here a remarkable historical account of escape from danger against all odds. No, more than that, we are being confronted in this passage with the wonders of the gospel of God's saving grace itself. This is a picture of salvation. It's a portrait of grace. It's a portrayal of how God always works to save his people. Here, in this Exodus event, in this wondrous event of Israel passing through the waters, here is the good news that God loves to save his people. Here is the gospel preached aforehand, if you like. And so as we look at this passage, I want to do so under four headings. Moses is wonderful, Moses is important, but Moses is not the main character of these events. God is. God is the main character, and he is at the heart of all that's being worked out. There's all kinds of things happening in this passage, but I think we can cover them under four broad themes. God's glory, God's presence, God's mediator, and God's deliverance. His glory, his presence, his mediator, and his deliverance. Let's think through this passage along those four lines. So first, God's glory. And I know that it sounds almost cliche at this point, but it truly is. It truly is all about the Lord God Almighty. Look at verses 15 through 18. Moses has been speaking to the terrified people on behalf of God. He's told them that the Lord is going to save them. We saw that back in verses 13 and 14. If you look back just a little bit, fear not, stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. But then look at verse 15. Not only had been, Moses had been speaking to the people on God's behalf, it seems he'd also been crying out to God on the people's behalf. He was the mediator, Moses was, the go-between God's appointed savior, little s, lowercase s, of his people. He intercedes on their behalf and he gives voice to God regarding what is going on in the hearts and minds of the people of Israel. So he's been praying. He's been crying out. But apparently God has had enough of Moses' prayers. (laughs) Isn't that remarkable? Verse 15, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. One paraphrase puts it like this. 
Enough already, Moses. Stop praying. I have given you my promises. What are you waiting for? Get moving. It seems that God is not pleased when prayer becomes an excuse for inactivity or doubt or disobedience. God is not pleased when prayer becomes an excuse for our inactivity or doubt or disobedience. That's what's happening here, is it not? Moses had the promises. God had told them what to do. Moses delays, nevertheless, giving voice to, instead to the fearful cries of his people. As one pastor puts it, how easy it is to let ourselves off the hook from following our duty as Christians so long as we tell ourselves we're still praying about it. God is not pleased with prayers used as an excuse for inactivity and disobedience, close quote. Well, God in his mercy and in his fatherly care won't let Israel off the hook, and he commands them to go into action. Stop praying, get moving. Okay, Lord, problem is there's nowhere to go. The command requires them to do the impossible. How do we get through these waters? By the way, that's always the case with the commands of the gospel. Repent. Believe. Those commands are every bit as impossible as the commands given to Moses. Apart from the Holy Spirit, natural man in his fallen state has no ability to respond to those commands. Shout them all day at your unconverted neighbor if you like. Repent. Believe. Repent. Believe. Shout them all you like. Apart from the Holy Spirit, they will never be heeded. Now, why would God do that? Why tell the Israelites to get moving when there is nowhere for them to go? Bring it into the New Testament. Why summon the dead to rise up and come to life and come to faith when the dead cannot respond? Look at the text. The Lord said to Moses, verse 15, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff. Stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry land. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host and his chariots and horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. What is God's agenda? It is to get glory for himself when he makes a way for them and triumphs over their enemies. You may have heard that well-known statement from St. Augustine, God commands what he wills and gives what he commands. God commands what he wills and gives what he commands. Get moving, Israel. (laughs) There's nowhere to go. It's impossible. Just you wait. He commands what he wills. It may be impossible to comply from a human vantage point, but he, praise the Lord, gives grace. He gives what he commands. The gospel renders what we cannot provide. God calls for faith and repentance, and we cannot exercise that when we are dead in our transgressions and sins. But God gives what he requires in order that all the glory for our salvation, all the glory for our redemption, all the glory for the reconciliation that we have from first to last may rest on him may be unto him. We're being reminded here again what we have seen before in Exodus, and that is the God-centeredness of God. God's chief end, if I can put it this way, man's chief end is to glorify God. God's chief end is his own glory. 
And such a disposition does not make God arrogant or egomaniacal, because actually, for God to be invested in the glorification of himself is the greatest news and the greatest good that a sinner could receive. One man puts it like this. The radical God-centeredness of God is good news because it's the only way for us as Christians to avoid the radical self-centeredness to which our hearts naturally incline. Close quote. Now, isn't that true? And what a needed recalibration that is when we dwell on the superficial, self-centered Christianity of our day. You, You walk into the average Christian bookstore, or you walk through the spirituality and religion section at Barnes & Noble, and under the supposedly Christian literature, the titles that you see give us, I think, a fair barometer of how the world, and even the church in many cases, misunderstand Christianity. The message that we hear is about my best life now, all about my comfort, my ease, my wholeness, my self-improvement. Jesus and his gospel, in such a in such a reckoning, in such a paradigm, becomes a tool, a means for me to manipulate in the agenda of my own self-worship and self-gratification. Now, brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but I have no trouble and I need no assistance in worshiping myself and my whims and my desires. I do that perfectly well on my own. What I need is someone who will liberate me from such a slavery. One who is not merely a genie who deigns to grant my wishes. This is actually good news and is wonderfully liberating. By his grace, we may find freedom from self-obsession. And our hearts are enabled to focus on an object other than ourselves. Something infinitely more glorious. Something infinitely more worthy to be adored. God is radically God-centered. And that is good news. And because he is, so too must we be. God does everything, not merely for our own comfort and benefit, though so much of what he does is for our benefit, but chiefly everything that he does is for his own glory. And when by grace we trust in him, we may be set freed from the perpetual cycle and slavery of our own religion of narcissism. Christian, just like Israel, God saves you not merely for the comfort of you, and not merely to make much of you, he saves you that you might make much of him. And in that, you might find everlasting joy as you see the beauty and majesty and grandeur and glory of God himself, liberated from self-worship and brought into the redemption, brought into the worship of the great redeeming God. God's glory on display here in the redemption of Israel. That's the first thing. Then secondly, look at verses 19 and 20. Here we see God's presence. God's presence. The angel of the Lord, God himself, is in the pillar of cloud and fire. The text tells us there, here and again in verse 24. But the cloud, now it moves from the front of Israel, so it's at the front leading them as they're on their victory parade, if you like, exiting Egypt and making their way toward Canaan. The pillar has been leading them on their triumphal march. The cloud now moves from the front of Israel and goes behind them. He now comes, verse 20, between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. Scripture says there was cloud and darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. 
Now, it's complicated language. It's a little wooden and awkward. But here's what seems to be happening. There is a division, a barrier, a divider between the people of God and the Egyptians, a barrier designed to preserve the Israelites. The cloud of God's presence keeps the Egyptians on one side, and it impedes them and it confuses them because it keeps them in such darkness that they cannot see, almost like a miniature version of the plague of darkness from just a few chapters ago. They cannot see. The pillar of fire, meanwhile, gives the Israelites on the other side light, supernatural flood of light that seems to be shining on their path so that they can keep walking forward and toward and through the waters. Almost, if you want to visualize it, almost as if one half of this pillar going vertically down is a cloud of darkness enshrouding the Egyptians in chaos and darkness and blindness on the one half, and the other half of this pillar is a tower of fire providing flooding and illuminating light to the children of Israel. Now, as you probably know, the New Testament frequently uses this imagery of light versus darkness. Many commentators believe, especially the Apostle John, that when he uses that language, he's drawing from this moment in Israel's history as a way to describe the implications of belonging to the people whom God saves. Darkness versus light. In light, what is there? There is safety, there is protection. And the blessedness of God's presence upon those whom he has set his steadfast covenant, love, and affection. There is safety and there is light among the people of God. There is refuge to be found in the people of God. On the other half of that pillar, there is darkness. And in that there is only peril. There is only danger to be found. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1 verses 5 through 7. The application from these two verses here in Exodus is simple, I think. Either we belong to the community in darkness or the community in light. There's no way to live in darkness and to belong to the Israel of God. Either we are Egyptians, so to speak, still in darkness, ultimately facing his wrath, or we are members of the community that God saves by grace, and we live in the light. As Holy Scripture commands us, as we just read from the Apostle John, we must walk as children of the light. God makes a separation. He makes a distinction between the church and the world between Egypt and Israel, between his people and those who reject his rule. We, we cannot live trying to straddle both camps. How much are we cherishing the treasures of Egypt, brothers and sisters? Or, if I can put it another way, how much are we still loving our sin? We cannot belong to the people of God and live like an Egyptian. We cannot serve two masters. So let us live as Christ's and let us walk in the light. That's the second thing that we must think about from this text. God's glory and then God's presence. But then thirdly, God's mediator. We see this in verses 21 through 29. God's mediator. 
Now back in verse 16, God told Moses to lift up his staff and to stretch out his hand and divide the sea so that Israel might escape. And now, verse 21 and following, Moses obeys. The sea piles up, notice, creating a wall of water on either side with a clear path through its middle in order for the Israelites to journey through. And Pharaoh, of course, pursues, hard-hearted and full of malice. He pursues, and just then the Lord throws them into confusion. The wheels of the chariots get weighed down in the mud, and again Moses is commanded to lift up his staff. Verse 27, the Egyptians fled into it. The Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. I love what one commentator points out. Verse 24, this happens at the morning watch or near daybreak when Ra, the sun god of Egypt, reveals himself at the dawn and he's ascending in power at daybreak according to Egyptian mythology. And here is the Lord God Almighty exposing even yet again Egypt's gods, again for the frauds that they are. Right at daybreak, right as Ra's at the ascendancy to his power, and he destroys the armies of Egypt. But did you see how it was done? It wasn't by Moses' prayer. Remember, God told him to stop praying and get moving. It was done by his obedient actions. He lifts up the staff as God had commanded him to do. And that staff served as a kind of symbol of God's promises and power attending Moses' ministry. He lifts up that staff and God speaks to Moses telling him to do so and tells Moses to divide the sea as though it were Moses himself doing it. Yet it was the Lord's doing, no question. But you see, the Lord had so tied together his will and bound it with these means of obedience from his servant Moses So that as Moses the mediator obeyed, the people of Israel were saved. This is how a mediator of a covenant always operates in Scripture. It's how God delights to save sinners. And it, of course, points to another mediator far greater than Moses. Moses was but a picture. God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Moses is often compared to Christ as as a prefigurement of him. I've been reading Hebrews here of late. You might remember Hebrews chapter 3, verse 3. Christ is counted worthy of more glory than Moses. He is the mediator of a better covenant than Moses. Christ Jesus didn't lift up a staff, a walking stick, of course, but rather he himself was lifted up and nailed to a Roman cross there to secure and purchase deliverance for us. And there at the cross, God's victory over death and judgment was secure. There, a people were ransomed from every tribe and language and nation. There, God the Son acted and he obeyed and we were saved. With the mediator in Moses, the mediator acted and Israel was saved. And so too in the gospel. Jesus Christ acts and he obeys and as a consequence, we are saved. God's people are saved and they are safe in him forevermore. So that's the third thing. God's glory, God's presence, God's mediator, and then finally, God's deliverance. 
God's deliverance. Look at verses 30 and 31. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Two things especially and briefly here. First, do note the Lord saved Israel that day. The situation was impossible. Israel had no hope. Left to themselves, Israel was doomed to death by the armies of Egypt. Yet God made a way and he saved them. It was unlikely. It was improbable. Maybe it was even presumed to fail. Sounds a lot like Calvary, doesn't it? Unlikely. Improbable. That God would use a Roman execution device and slay his own son, utterly rejected by everyone. A wretch, denied, hated, mocked, humiliated, this obscure Jewish rabbi, and yet he is the savior of the world. It's extraordinary. God's grand design, using improbable, if not absolutely impossible means to accomplish so great a salvation. So great a deliverance. God has saved his people. And he has done so by the wounds of his son. God saved Israel that day from Egypt. Moving pillars of clouds and fire. Parting the Red Sea. Frustrating. The most imperial might in all the known world in those days. And ultimately God saved his own. His elect. His chosen precious and redeemed church unto himself in the slaying of his own son. And notice number two, notice how the people respond, verse 31. Israel saw the great power of the Lord, the people feared the Lord, they believed in the Lord, and in his servant Moses. What was true for Israel, brothers and sisters, must be true and is true for us. Seeing the salvation of the Lord, seeing his saving power, seeing his glory on display should provoke in us a response. When we behold our God and his Christ, his Son, our Savior, we, we, we cannot be unfazed. Now, I, I realize that some of us are naturally more emotionally prone than others. It's how we're wired, our personalities and our temperaments. But you see, it is not a mere emotive response that is called for here. Rather, it is a disposition of the heart and our wills and our actions that must be the response. And what should that response be? Fear the Lord, revere the Lord, worship the Lord, and trust him. As one commentator puts it, believe in the Lord and in his servant, the one greater than Moses, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who can rescue you. It is to tremble before him, as we see here in Exodus, recognizing his majesty, his sovereignty, recognizing that if he does not act to rescue you, you will not be rescued. It is to tremble in reverent awe and to cast yourself completely, all your hope, all your confidence, all your trust, all your faith on Jesus Christ. Close quote. Oh, my friends, let us take it in. Let us believe it. And in doing so, let's be trusting and loving Christ our God in holy fear and in joyful faith. Shall we pray together? Our Father, there are those of us who are convinced 
that some act of our own obedience will win your favor? Some action on our part needs to be performed as if your favor needs to be wrested from clenched fists. Some of us, on the other hand, despair that God's favor or love will ever rest upon us. How could he love such a wretch like us? Am I truly in his good graces? And you respond by directing us again and again to the wondrous work of your grace in providing a cross as your means of deliverance to all who come seeking mercy and to all who would cling to you by faith. Oh, we pray that you would impress this gospel assurance upon us. Call us out of our spiritual lethargy or our sloth. Help us walk in the light of obedience and new life. Deliver us from doubt or despair. And, oh God, cause us to joyfully trust the deliverance that only Jesus can give. For we ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen.